just warm your heart and make you feel really, really, really good about yourself. This is not the one either. Um, we're going to continue on in this tribulation period of the book of Revelation. And let me just give you a quick recap of where we have been so far. Revelation 1 began with a greeting from the Trinity and a glorious vision of the exalted Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, walking in the midst of his churches. Chapters 2 and 3 are basically seven letters to seven specific historical churches of that age and all ages. A significant turn of events takes place in Revelation 4 where John is told, Come up here and I will show you the things that must take place. And John is taken um, in the spirit to heaven and into the future as God shows him what will happen, the consummation of history. Chapters 4 and 5 are a glorious revelation of two parts. Chapter 4 focuses on God the Father, the Lord of creation. Chapter 5 focuses on God the Son, the Lord of redemption. Therefore, it is through creation and redemption that God has the right to to do with the earth and to do with its inhabitants whatever he pleases. Chapter 6 begins what we call the tribulation period from chapter 6 all the way till chapter 19 when Jesus comes again, the second coming of Jesus Christ to establish his earthly uh, kingdom. But chapter uh, 6 contains this, the seal judgments and introduces us to the four horsemen of the apocalypse and a fourth of humanity is killed Chapter 7 is an interlude, basically a break in the action by which we are reminded that even in the midst of God's judgment, he remembers mercy. And we're also reminded that God is not through with the Jews. Um, there are 144,000 sealed. In chapter 8, the seventh seal is open and um, the seven trumpets begin to sound. And it, If you're following along, think of it like this. The seventh seal means the very end. The seventh trumpet, we're going to see sound today, means the very, very end. When we get to the seventh bowl, it means the very, very, very end. So it's a cyclical picture showing us the end is here. So, But chapter um, 8 is that, that picture of the seventh seal is open. The seven trumpets begin to sound. God brings physical judgment upon creation, but God also brings specific personal judgment against the unrepentant. And another third of humanity is killed. So this morning we come to Revelation chapters 10 and 11. And as there was an interlude between the 6th and 7th seal, there is now another interlude between the 6th and 7th trumpet. And just think about all that John had already seen. Just massive, massive destruction upon the earth. A half of humanity wiped out. Demons coming from the pit. Demons, um, locusts running wild um, upon mankind. And Think about the thoughts that must have been going through John's mind. And think about the thoughts that, that go through our mind. Has there ever been a time in your life where you had wondered whether God had forgotten you? Now, if you say no, you're probably lying in church, but we'll forgive you today. You know, has there been a time in your life where you had ever wondered who was really in control? You know, is God in control? Are my circumstances in control? Is that person in control? Is evil in control? And has there ever been a time in your life where you wondered if evil would really win? You know, will evil really win here? It seems like evil is winning. Evil is up 10 to 1. And I, I don't have any strength to even get up to the plate to go to bat. Will evil win? And I think of the words of one commentator who introduced this section, Revelation 10 and 11, 
um, this way, and I think we'll put it on the screen as well. It says, when evil is everywhere and the world is ripe for judgment, can God protect his own? When economies crash, when civil orders falter and societal fabric frays, when restraint and respect give way to rude and uh, rude aggression and random violence, when greed and animal appetite reign supreme, this question, can God protect his own, weighs on the hearts of God's people. So without a doubt, John found himself in this kind of situation. A half of the world's population had died as a result of the Great Tribulation. Disasters are striking at every turn. Demons are on the loose. Evil appears to be reigning supreme. Then suddenly, there is a break in the action. And what this break allows for John and for us is to regain a proper perspective. Because let me tell you what happens, brothers and sisters, in the midst of when things, when evil is turned loose on us, when circumstances that we do not want enter our lives, when things, evil things enter our lives, what we often lose first is a proper perspective. And we begin to say things that aren't true. Oh, I'm cursed. It's all evils against me. We begin to preach to ourselves messages that are unbiblical. And we need a proper perspective. And this is what John is given here, and this is what we have. So this interlude serves as a reminder that God was there. So some 2,000 years ago, God was there to give this message to John, taking John into the future to see that God is still there. And then we understand today, God is here. God is there. He's there. He's here. And praise God, he's not silent. He's not silent. He is speaking. He's a speaking, revealing God. So let's dig in this morning to Revelation 10. We're going to read chapters 10 and 11. It'll be on the screen as well. We're going to begin with chapter 10 and verse 1, and it says this. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. He set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that, they, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet, called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me a little scroll, to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey." And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now let's look at chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. 
But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at the hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were really or were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was or who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. The time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to you today, Lord. We do so to Lord, another long section and confusing section. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the wisdom to keep the primary main things the main things. Lord, speak to us here in this room and those watching from home. And, and Lord, God, help us to hear you, to see you, to respond to you rightly. Speak, O oh God, for we are listening. Lord, just speak. Speak, Father, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I'm entitling this message, uh, Mystery Unraveled. And how many of you guys um, love a good mystery? So a few of you in here love a good mystery, the rest of you maybe not so much. But in preparing uh, for this message this week, I did a great um, deep online search of the world's greatest mysteries I'm not going to share those with you, but instead I'm going to uh, share a few that I found um, to such questions as the following. Great mysteries in this world. The first one is, where are Jimmy Hoffa's remains? 
It's a great mystery. I'm pretty sure New York Dean Mutino can tell you. I'm pretty sure he's a witness protection program sent down here um, from New York, so he might have some answers for that. Another one, if someone owns a piece of land, do they own it all the way to the center of the earth? Great question. Do fish get thirsty? Can we cry underwater? Why doesn't glue stick to the inside of the bottle? Great question. How important does a person have to be before they are considered assassinated instead of just murdered? Great question. Why does a round pizza come in a square box? Another mystery. What disease did cured ham actually have? Thank you. First service did not get that response. Some of you will get it later on. Great question. What happens to all those socks that disappear in the dryer? Isn't that a mystery? That's the mystery of all mysteries. Or how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop? The world might never know. Or the question, maybe the greatest mystery of all is, will we ever know who let the dogs out? Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. But Revelation 10 and 11 are filled with many mysteries. The mystery of the angel in chapter 10, verse 1. The mystery of the little book in chapter 10, verse 2. The mystery of God in chapter 10, verse 7. The mystery of the temple in chapter 11, verse 1. The, <coughs> excuse me, the mystery of <coughs> the two witnesses in chapter 11, verse 3. And unfortunately for the inquiring mind, we're not going to unravel every mystery that we are confronted with in these two chapters. But we're going to literally and personally tackle some of these truths in order that we may, as we've said, week in and week out, um, keep the main thing the main thing. Keep that which is primary, primary. So with that said, let us jump into chapters 10 and 11 by understanding the first biblical truth, which is this. All secret things belong to the Lord. All secret things belong to the Lord. And look at verses 5 through 7 as they appear on the screen. And the Lord or, and the angels swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven, the earth, the sea, and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servant the prophet. So as the interlude begins, we are quickly introduced to this mighty angel or another angel is what we're told, meaning of the same type as others. And this angel is coming down from Heaven. Angels are mentioned more than 60 times in the book of Revelation. Um, mighty angels or strong angels are mentioned three times in this book. And this angel coming down from heaven is described as mighty because he is both majestic and apparently he is huge. He has one foot on the sea, one foot on the land. And the appearance of this angel have, has led many people to say it must be Jesus. You look at the way he's described, his voice like a lion, he must be Jesus. Others say it must be Michael, the archangel, whose name means who is like God. And although this text doesn't give us a clear answer to that question, this angel is basically an angel like the others, like the, those others blowing the seven trumpets. The word angel all throughout the book of Revelation gets this, get this it means angel. It means messenger all throughout. The, the meaning doesn't change. And here's what we know. We know it's not Jesus, first of all, because this angel raises his right hand and swears to the one who made everything, meaning Jesus wouldn't be swearing to himself. He doesn't have to swear to himself. He just declares it, and it is true. It is it. Um, and secondly, when Jesus comes again, it will be the end. 
So this angel in coming to the earth is saying, hey, the end is about to happen. When Jesus actually touches the earth, it is the end. It is the end of the story. It is over. And this is where we begin to see, when we get to verse 4, that God's will may sometimes be concealed to us. That God might sometimes conceal his will to us. So in verse 4, if you see it in your, your Bibles, as the angel speaks, the seven thunders um, sound, seeming to be in line with the seven seals and the seven trumpets. Thunder is a symbol of judgment throughout the Bible, but it's also a symbol of God's revelation. In chapter uh, 29 of the book of Psalm, thunder is portrayed as the voice of God seven different times. So these thunders begin to happen, and John begins to or prepares to write down what the voice from heaven is saying, and then he is told, don't. Don't do it. Seal it up. And these become the only words in the book of Revelation that are sealed up. And this is a good reminder to us, don't miss this, that the book of Revelation is not an exhaustive look at every single detail that will happen in the future. So the book of Revelation is not an exhaustive detail of every single event, meaning, and hear this, God doesn't owe us a peek behind the curtain so that we might know everything that's coming. God doesn't owe us that. I think of the book of Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says this, the secret things belong to God. You know, how many of you guys have questions that you have ever asked God? Okay, half of us, the rest of you, maybe sometime later on you'll have a question for God. And sometimes, of course, God will give us an answer through his word. Sometimes God will speak through others to give us that answer through the word. But sometimes in the midst of our questions, God might just actually say, it's none of your business, follow me. It's none of your business, trust me. How do I know God will say that? Because when Peter was told how he was going to die by Jesus, Peter looks at John and says, Jesus, how is John going to die? And Jesus basically said, it's none of your business, Peter. You follow me. And there are times where Jesus tells us in the midst of our questions, it's none of your business. Just trust me. It's none of your business how all of this is going to happen. Just trust me. There are certain times where secret things belong to God. But let me tell you how this um, verse ends. So Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So thankfully, there are times where God does reveal his will to us. And what God reveals here after saying, close up the seal, don't, don't write it down, he reveals no further delay. God is not going to stop in pouring out the remaining judgments upon the earth. And the, the mystery that had been concealed will now be revealed, will now be declared. And that mystery is this. As we talked about this last week, the prayers that God's people had been praying for 2,000 years. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven will be revealed in all of their splendor and it will happen. The point is the time is now, the kingdom will come, God's will is being shown in its final defeat of evil. That day is coming. But brothers and sisters, it's not given to us to know every single detail. Like I said, some people, this book becomes a stumbling block that keeps them from seeing that which is ultimate because they're so worried about that which is um, so insignificant and so small in this book. Brothers and sisters, the whole point of Revelation is this. Don't miss it. God wins. And because God wins, we as his children, we win too. 
That's the whole point. Don't miss it. So all secret things belong to the Lord, which leads us to the second truth. Our service is ordained by the Lord. Our service is ordained by the Lord. And there are three kind of separate truths that, that kind of flow forth from this truth that I want to kind of unpack. First is this. Our service is ordained by the Lord and that we must take in the word of God. Look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 10 on the screen. It says, Take the scroll in the hand of the angel. So I went and he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. So it was not enough for John just to know the word. It was not enough for John to see the word. John had to take the word of God into his inner being. Take and eat are actually commands. They're not just suggestions that were given him. They were commands given to him. And this isn't the first time that a prophet of God was told to eat the book. Jeremiah did it. Ezekiel was told this command. And this is where we see that all throughout God's word, God's word is called bread in Matthew 4. It's called milk in 1 Peter 2. It's called meat in 1 Corinthians 3. It's called honey in Psalm 119. But the point is this. God doesn't force feed any of us. You know, there's a cute little thing that, that happens when we have a little, little baby. You know, a little baby, we take little baby food, we put it in a spoon, and we start making cute little sounds or crazy little sounds. Whoop, whoop, here it comes. Open your mouth, little baby. Choo, choo, choo. Here it comes. And, you know, eventually the baby will open the mouth, and we're like, whoop, and they eat the food, and it's so cute and so precious, and we're so amazing. And that, that's cute for babies. But just imagine yourself this afternoon in a restaurant, and you're sitting down, and um, the food comes, and they put it in front of you, and you just don't do anything. And the waitress comes, the waiter comes and says, hey, is everything okay? Yeah, I'm good. Well, you haven't touched your food yet. And you say, oh, I'm waiting for my pastor. So all of a sudden, then your pastor comes in, and I, I cut up your food for you, and I take it in little bites, and I go, choo-choo, open up, here it comes. And I begin to go throughout the table, whoop, 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 here it comes. And you open your mouth, and everybody cheers when you, when you bite. I mean, imagine, just imagine that scene. Okay, for, for, for a little baby, that's so cute. For you, that would be really, really weird, right? That would be super, super weird for your pastor to have to come and feed you. And here's the point for us today. Number one, God doesn't, God doesn't force his word into our lives. He doesn't force us to consume his word. But let me just say this. People that don't desire the word of God from Monday to Saturday normally have very limited interest in it on Sunday. Brothers and sisters, but when we feed ourselves, because we're able to feed ourselves from the word of God, when we feed ourselves on this word, something happens, we want more of it. We're more hungry for it, but the point is this, we're able to feed ourselves. Now, granted, I thank God that we can come in here and I, I'm able to break this word and we're able to rejoice in its truths together, but you're not dependent upon me to tell you what this word says. You have the Holy Spirit of God who enables you to know what these truths are. Now, getting off the ground, if you want to grow a little bit, I'll be glad to cut the meat and I'll be glad to shovel it into your mouth, but there comes a time you've got to chew yourself and you've got to desire it on your own and you've got to learn how to take this word in in your own life. So when we continually take the word of God in, two things are going to happen. Number one, it's going to be sweet to our mouth. But secondly, it's going to be bitter to our stomachs. 
This word will be sweet to our mouths because what we read in it is sweet. It's God glorifying. It's grace on display and God saving sinners. And that is so sweet to us. But it's also bitter in that we see God will judge sinners. He must. And this is, I think, every day when I read God's word, there are times where I rejoice in the amazing promises. I rejoice, and those promises of God are so sweet. Those promises in the midst of, of difficulties are so sweet. But there are also times where I read it, and it's bitter, meaning I don't always like what I read. I don't always like that God's word puts me in my place. I don't always like that sometimes God's word, I feel like as I'm reading it, there's a light that's shining on me saying, sinner, 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 and it doesn't always make me feel the best about myself. But it's a gift. It's a gift that God would love me enough that he doesn't want to keep me where I am. He wants me to bring me to where he is. This, is this picture where we have the, this effect of sweetness and, and bitterness. How often does God's word relate to you in that way? Pastor Daniel Aiken says this, There is sorrow and joy, bitterness and sweetness, sadness and gladness when God's word does its work in our lives. We must take in the word of God. But then secondly, we must speak forth the truth of God. We must speak forth the truth of God. Look at verse 11. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So a key word in chapters 10 and 11 is prophet or prophesy. We, we see it six different times. So in the middle of God's judgments to the world, what do God's people do? And the answer is they speak God's word to the world. And the word prophecy isn't about just um, speaking forth announcements of all the things that are coming. What prophesying is, it's meaning speaking forth present truth in light of what is coming. And, and brothers and sisters, if you know the word of God, if you have the word of God, we know what's coming. We know what's coming. We know what is going to happen. Therefore, we speak forth the word of God. Or as we say oftentimes around here, the word of God is not meant to stop with us. It's meant to spread through us. It might be a weird conversation, brother and sister, but I can tell you it's a beneficial conversation for you maybe at work or somewhere else of someone who maybe doesn't know the Lord or maybe someone who does to just randomly say, you know what, I was reading the word of God today and here's how God spoke to me. And it might be the weirdest conversation, and that person might go, huh, like, what in the world just happened? Like, that was so weird. But brothers and sisters, God's word will not return void. It won't. It won't. We have to take it in, and we let it out. We speak it out. We possess in our hands, brothers and sisters, bread for the hungry, water for the thirsty, life for the dying. Let this word out. We must speak forth the truth of God. And then third, we must live out the purposes of God. We must live out the purposes of God. And look at chapter 11, verses 3 and 6 and 7. This is kind of when we get into some of the, the, the good mysteries. It says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They have the power to shut the sky. They have the power over the waters. And when they have finished their testimony. So it's at this point that we are introduced in this book to two witnesses who will minister for three and a half years. They will mourn for the world's sin and they will call all people to repentance. But look at verse 4 of chapter 11. In verse 4 of chapter 11, this is a key verse, it says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. 
So this looks back to Zechariah chapter 4. So olive trees provided oil for lamps, and they are called then to give lampstands which give light. So together they speak of these two witnesses, God's power working in them to shine forth God's light in the midst of the world in a very, very, very dark time. And who are these two witnesses? Now I'm glad you asked. Because some say they represent the Old Testament and New Testament. Some say they represent the witnessing church. Some say they represent Enoch and Elijah. Others say Moses and Elijah. Some say Zerubbabel and Joshua. And there are many, many, many other opinions and options um, that are given. Here's what we do know. Number one, these two witnesses are not named in the text which would indicate that maybe, just maybe, God does not intend for us to identify them. But secondly, here's what we do know. These two witnesses are coming, without a doubt, in the power of Elijah and Moses. Now, how do we know that? Because um, these two witnesses, they will consume their enemies with fire, which is what Elijah, by the power of God, did in 2 Kings 1. They will shut the heavens so it will not rain, which is what Elijah, through the power of God, did in 2 Kings 17. They will turn water into blood, which is what Moses, by the power of God, did in Exodus 7. And they will strike the earth with all kind of plagues, which is what Moses, through the power of God, did through Exodus 7 through 12. And so these two witnesses will receive the power of God in order to fulfill the purpose of God. And look at the beginning of verse 7 of chapter 11. Don't miss this. And when they have finished their testimony, only when these two witnesses have finished God's purpose, only when they have done what God called them to do, will God then permit for the beast to come and to kill them. Meaning, don't miss this. These two witnesses will not die prematurely, and neither will you, and neither will I. We will not die before God's plan for us, for no one can interfere until the work of God is done. Hear this. You and I, in the middle of God's will, are in an invincible place. Let me say it again. You and I, in the middle of God's will, are in an invincible place. But let me say another statement. You and I, outside of God's will, are in a miserable place. You can, you can look at people and tell if they're outside of God's will because they're just, they're just miserable. But when we're in the middle of God's will, we're in an invincible place. I think of the Baptist missionary, Lottie Moon. You'll hear more about her coming up in December. She once said this, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal till my work is done. I'm immortal until my work is done. So these two witnesses, they fulfill the purpose of God, and then they're killed by men. And the world, all the world sees their dead bodies, and all the world rejoices when they see their dead bodies, and they give gifts to each other. It's been called the hellish Christmas. They give gifts not to celebrate the birth of Jesus. They give gifts to celebrate the death of two of Jesus' witnesses. And incredibly, they're celebrating. This is the only time in the whole tribulation period where we're told that people on earth are rejoicing. And they're rejoicing because they no longer have to listen to God's message given to them through the mouth of his witnesses. And they rejoice over that. What a terrifying indictment against the sinfulness of man. That man would rejoice 
over not having the message of God, yet God will honor his servants in that three and a half days, God says, come on up. And they receive breath, and they go and see the Lord. And then God deals with the sinner. He sends an earthquake. 7,000 die. And these two witnesses, in them we see the fulfillment of God's purpose as these men fulfill God's purpose. They, they take on God's purpose. Brothers and sisters, I pray to God that you and I would live in the center of God's purpose for our lives and that we would do so in, in a sense of knowing that we're invincible. That doesn't mean that bad things won't happen to me. That doesn't mean that bad circumstances won't come into my life. But what it does mean that anything that comes into my life came first through the hand of God and God is able to take whatever it is that comes into my life and he's able to work it together for good. And for the Christian, that's not just a promise given from God, that's a reality. Meaning we don't, God doesn't wait for us, to those who love God, doesn't wait, God doesn't wait for us to say, God, I'm claiming Romans 8, 28. No, if you are his and you love him, the second the thing enters into your life and you trust him with it, he's already working it for good. He's already doing that. And so we praise God for that. Don't, don't waste our lives. Give yourself to the purposes of God for your life. Our services are ordained by the Lord, which leads us to the last truth, which is this. His sovereignty declares him to be Lord. His sovereignty declares him to be Lord. History is not rambling on to some haphazard ending. History is not like a, a twig going through a, a stream. History is moving specifically to a certain event that we read about or certain events that we read about in the book of Revelation. In fact, look at chapter 11, verse 15. And you can see on the screen, the seventh angel blew his trumpet. So now the seventh trumpet. And there were loud voices saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We've been waiting since Revelation 8, 13 for the third woe to arrive, and now it is here. And the seventh trumpet blows, and we are given an announcement of God's victory and his faithfulness. In the end, what we see is that the Savior, our Savior, will reign. In the end, he will reign. The seventh trumpet sets in motion God's plan of redemption, his final plan of redemption. And so certain it's going to happen that the, his messengers declare the kingdom has become his. It is his, for the king shall reign forever and ever. Just think about powerful rulers who have ruled our world. Think of rulers like Pharaoh. Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Caesar, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, Saddam Hussein. These men who conquered and ruled vast empires, but they, have, they all have one thing in common. They all died. When they breathed their last breath, their kingdom was over. But brothers and sisters, our king when he breathed his last breath, three days later, he breathed again. And he is alive forevermore. We have no reason to fear our king will reign forever and ever. There's a story told. I don't know what you celebrate on October 31st. Here's what I celebrate. I don't, I don't mind celebrating candy. Every day for me is a great day to celebrate candy. I love 
candy, especially lemon heads, are my favorite. And jelly beans aren't bad either. But I love celebrating candy. But on October 31st, we get to celebrate what is called Reformation Day, a day where Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the door of the church in Germany, saying, declaring, listen, I'm not no longer going by what a pope or a priest tells me. I'm going by what this word tells me. And setting forth, sparking forth the Reformation in an amazing, beautiful, incredible way. But there's a story that even Martin Luther went through a three-day period of depression because of circumstances that had entered his life, and his depression was so bad that on the third day, when he was in his chair just sulking, his wife walked in dressed in her funeral dress, to which his wife looked at him and said, Martin, who died? And she said, oh, you didn't hear? God did. And he quickly rebuked her, saying, what do you mean God is dead? God cannot die, for he is alive. To which his wife responded, oh, I'm sorry, but with the way you've been acting, I was pretty sure he had. And brothers and sisters, think about that. Do we act in a way to declare to the world that our God is enough? Do we act and declare with the way that we live to the world that our God is alive and well? Do we act in a way to declare to the world that our God is able, regardless of what comes next, he is more than able? The empty tomb stands as a perpetual monument that the world has, the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Yes, we will have opposition. Yes, Satan will raise his ugly head against us. Yes, there might even be people who rejoiced at our death. But never forget, there is a resurrection day for us. A kingdom is coming and a reward that will come to us. In the end, brothers and sisters, we will be rewarded. Look with me at verse 17. In verse 17 of chapter 11, it says, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was or who is and who was. Now, in other portions, it says who is and who was and who is to come. But they don't use that anymore. Why? Because he's already come. So Jesus has come, so they no longer have to say, please come, because he's, he's there. And all they can say now is, who is and who was. And then look at verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. And ultimately, brothers and sisters, our reward is that we are in his presence, receiving his mercy and his grace forever. Now, I've read certain theologians that say we should never talk about needing God's grace forever because one day we'll be in heaven and we won't need his grace. But here's what I think. The word mercy means that we don't get what we deserve. The word grace means that we get what we don't deserve. Brothers and sisters, if you are in heaven one day with God, there will never be a day where you don't receive mercy and grace. Forever you will not be getting what you deserve, which is hell. And forever you will be getting what you don't deserve, which is heaven. Experience his mercy and his grace forever. And then look at verse 19. It says, Then God's temple in heaven was open, and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. And that doesn't do much for us. But to an Old Testament or New Testament believer, here was one thing that was true. They never got to see the ark. For them, the ark was a message hidden behind a huge four-inch veil that said, Keep away. Do not come near. Do not approach that ark or you will die. 
And when Jesus died upon the cross, the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom, by which instead of us as believers hearing, stay away from God, we now are being told, come near. Come near. And there's coming a day where the child of God will see in the temple the art which represents God's mercy and God's grace for us forever. And brother, that's what's coming. Brothers and sisters, that is what's coming. In the midst of all the mysteries of this world, in the midst of all the the delays of God, that is what is coming. Let me end with the words of W.A. Criswell, former pastor at the First Baptist Church of Dallas. And he says this, and this is so powerful when it comes to what we just read. The mystery is the delay of God in taking the kingdom unto himself. For these thousands of years, God has allowed Satan to wrap his vicious, slimy, filthy, cruel tentacles around human life and around this earth. Does God know it? Is he indifferent to it? Oh, the mystery of the delay of God. That mystery has brought more stumbling to God's people than any other experience in all of life. The enemies of all that we hold dear rise and increase in power. And we wonder where God is. Our missionaries are slain. Our churches are burned to the ground. And God just looks. Oh, the mystery of the, 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 excuse me, the delay of God or the Lord our God. But somewhere beyond the starry sky, there stands a herald angel with a trumpet in his hand. And by the decree of the Lord God Almighty, there is a day, there is an hour, there is a moment when the angel shall sound and the kingdom of this world shall become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And let me end this way, brothers and sisters. Here's a mystery. We don't know when Christ is coming back. We don't know the day or the hour, but here's what we know. He's coming. He's coming. And here's what else we don't know. We don't always know why events enter our lives. I have people all the time will ask me questions such as, why are things the way they are in my life? Why does it seem like chaos reigns in my life? Why are things the way they are in the political spectrum of our world? Why are things the way they are in our nation? Why are things the way they are in our world? And of course, the ultimate theological answer is this, sin. But also, maybe, just maybe, the answer is this. Have you ever thought that maybe, just maybe, God allows the evil to enter into your life so that you would be reminded that this world is not your home? This world is not your home. This isn't it. Do you know what sin does? And I'm going to be very, this is the only profession by which I can say this, and some of you might even amen me. Sin makes us so stupid. And that we... Don't want from God what God wants to give us the most, which is eternity with him. And we are so determined that we want to hang on here as long as possible. And we're like, God, if you just give me 115 years here, I'll just be great and happy. No, you won't. Because you'll still be dealing with the consequences of sin as long as you walk on this earth. And maybe, just maybe, when things don't go your way, it's God reminding you, this world isn't your home. I have a home for you that will not have any pain, any suffering, any um, sickness, and any death. And God is maybe, just maybe, saying, don't you want, don't you want what I have for you? It might be a mystery to so many brothers and sisters, we know it's coming. May we want it desperately. May we pray for his kingdom to come, his will to be done on earth as it's being done in heaven. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to call the musicians forward and enter into this time of invitation and consecration. Lord, we come before you, Lord, and there are so many mysteries that we see in this, these two chapters, and yet, Lord, the, 
the clear things are clear. Jesus, you are coming again. In your coming, Lord, you will, without a doubt, you will judge those who don't know you and you will reward those who do forever in your presence. We pray, God, today for those who don't know you. If any that are under the sound of my voice, God, convict them, Holy Spirit, now. They will turn from their sin, from trusting in themselves, and they would turn to you, Jesus Christ, trusting you as Savior and Lord. For the child of God in this room, Lord, some in this room, maybe they're, they're not serving you. They're not finishing. They're not doing the things that you've called them to do. Lord, help us, God, to finish. Help us to serve you. Help us to understand how invincible we are in the middle of your will. And help us to place ourselves there, knowing how also, Lord, how miserable we are outside your will. And Lord, help us to trust your sovereignty. There is a coming a day where you will make every wrong right. Sin will be vanquished. And everything good and right and holy and just will prevail. And not just for a moment, but forever and ever. Lord, finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen.